Welcome back to the Lynx Golf Podcast. This is your host, digital editor, Al Lunsford. Uh, season six of the podcast. This is our first episode. Uh, I forget now the exact number of episodes we've done, but we're starting on season six today, and we're happy to be joined by Greg Nathan, who is the chief business officer for the National Golf Foundation. Greg, how's it going? It's going great, Al. Good morning, and thanks for having me on. Sure, definitely. I know you're joining us from the HQ down in Jupiter, Florida. How are things going for you down there? Indeed, the uh, the world headquarters of the National Golf Foundation. You know, all, all things considered, things are great. I always joke with people that I have two teenagers at home, so it's, it's pandemonium, even when it's not the pandemic. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's good. Are you getting to play any golf right now? I've been very fortunate that my, my club, the Die Preserve in Jupiter, uh, which has been profiled in Lynx Magazine before, uh, is in Martin County. So Martin County is not, at no point during the pandemic did Martin County shut down golf. Uh, so I've had the benefit of, of playing there. I'm currently nursing a bit of a wrist injury, uh, which has had me not hit a golf ball in the past month. And if I told you that that is more painful than my wrist, uh, I would be uh, quite honest in that assessment. Well, let's hope everything heals up in all regards there soon for you. Um, Greg is is joining us uh, to discuss, I thought it would be an interesting conversation. The NGF produces uh, a report kind of surveying the the golf business landscape, and they've put together some, some research and information regarding the state of the game and how the COVID-19 pandemic has affected things like participation and equipment sales, travel, and effect on golf courses. Before we get into that, Greg, just I wanted to give for those unfamiliar with maybe what the National Golf Foundation is and what it does, um, an idea of your role in the business of golf. Sure, Al. So the NGF was founded in 1936 uh, by two brothers, Herb and Joe Graffis, who are journalists. Uh, So in the media business like yourself, uh, Herb and Joe had a vision in the 1920s when golf was purely a private game, that golf was going to be big business in America. And guess what? They were right. And the first job that the NGF ever did back then was to create the database of every golf course in the U.S., primarily for the service of the golf equipment companies who were operating at the time. So there was no PGA Tour Superstore back then or uh, other retailers to sell their product. They only sold on course. So that was the first major service to the industry that the NGF provided uh, so that those companies knew where, which courses, which shops were still open on course to sell their products. So fast forward 84 years, that's still a core part of our business is studying the supply side of golf. But of course, we, we look at the entire golf economy and we're best known as the independent and objective reporter on the vital signs of the golf business. Uh, we study the golf economy and we have the benefit of you know, a 360 degree view, because not only do we study all aspects of the golf economy, we also do a tremendous amount of private work with the top 100 companies in golf. 
We're the only organization that works with companies in every business segment of the game. So we get to combine for the benefit of the industry and our clients uh, empirical knowledge, uh, study, uh, data on the industry. We're a golf's data company, along with really well-informed perspective of what's going on on the ground in the golf business in each category with the leading businesses. Uh, and it gives us a very unique perspective on the golf business in general that we implement for the benefit of the industry and the benefit of individual companies who engage us on analytical projects, private research, marketing intelligence, and even uh, marketing, helping companies sell, sell things. So a really holistic uh, approach to the golf business and as valuable as, as data is and has become, I'm sure that what you do is extremely valuable, especially in times like this. Um, you yourself, how'd you get started with the NGF and, and what, is, what are your primary responsibilities? I, I started my career about 10 years in the advertising business in New York. So I'm a, a branding guy, a marketing guy at heart. But I knew in my early 20s that I wanted to work in golf. Uh, there was no question in my mind, which is a, a really nice benefit for somebody who knows where they want to go and what they want to do. Uh, my first job in golf was working with Golf Magazine uh, from 2000 to 2007, where I worked in the marketing department and creating programs that helped their advertisers activate golfers for their benefit. That transitioned in 2007 to me moving down to Florida and coming to work for Dr. Joe Bettitz and the NGF, which has turned out, I'm one of the luckiest people in the world, Al. You know, I, I, I get to wake up every day knowing that I am going to have conversations with uh, business leaders from some of the uh, biggest and most influential companies in golf, uh, doing something of value to help them. And that that's something that's easy uh, for a golf-crazy lunatic to get up in the morning, to have that opportunity to work with those people and work intimately with those companies. But I also have conversations on a daily basis with golf course owners or a superintendent at a nine-hole course in Iowa. So my job covers both sides of the NGF's business. Like I'm on this podcast with you, I get to talk about what's going on in the industry informed by our unique perspective and access to data and people and companies. But I also spend a great deal of my time working with individual companies, helping them win. You know, if when people talk about, uh, ask, when people ask me, Hey Greg, how's the golf business doing? Which is one of the questions I get more than anything. Well, the answer, despite what the media says in general, and the media really has it out for golf, saying chicken little, golf, the sky is falling, golf is dying. The answer to the question of how's the golf business is it's stable and it's competitive. And I don't see that being so different than a lot of industries relative to the competitive part. So where the media said, oh, golf is falling off a cliff. Nobody plays anymore. Millennials don't like it, uh, et cetera, et cetera. The answer is 
Nobody ever said that every business in an industry or every golf course in an industry is going to be successful. They have to compete to win. And that's really what I get to do is I get to inform golf companies, uh, give them the inputs they need to make better informed decisions. And I get to work one-on-one to help them compete more effectively. And I find that to be a lot of fun. It sounds like a lot of fun. It sounds like a big responsibility, but um, according to, to everything I've read here on the NGF's website and then visiting it in the past, um, you guys do a tremendous job. Very so, kind. Thank you. Thank so you so I, much. Sure, of course. And I won't waste your time and ask you, uh, hey, Greg, how's the golf business doing? But readers can go to the ngfq.com and get a glimpse of what it looks like right now um, from a July, an update from July 29th. Um, segue into that a little bit. Um, when you're putting together a report like this, this COVID-19 update that you have on your website, where does the data come from exactly? What's, what's the sample size that the NGF is using to gather information like this? That's an interesting question, Al. I, I, the, best, the best way I can answer that is going back to what I said earlier. So we, we have to produce information that's going to be valuable to a broad variety of different uh, leaders in different categories. So if you consider the golf business, and I'll just touch on some of the big ones, it, it, if you've got companies that we serve who make clubs and balls, who sell uh, mowing, mowing equipment, irrigation, uh, golf course management software, retailers, uh, et cetera. So companies with a broad level of interest uh, in different things that are really applied directly to that. So to answer your question, we have, we're doing a variety of different types of research where one, one aspect we might be studying about COVID's effect on golf might be relative to travel, might be relative to the purchase of equipment. Of course, we're studying golf participation and how golf being such a good, uh, well, so well positioned for this environment, well, how is it affecting the addition of new players or the activity uh, of, of families or kids. So depending on what we're studying at that moment, what aspect of the business, that's going to determine who the sample is that we're going to research. And it's not always primary research where there is a sample per se. Al. Sometimes we're studying uh, the number, uh, we're studying Google searches. You know, how many people searching for uh, golf, new golf equipment or drivers, uh, which is another way to study what's going on uh, among the golfing public. What's their level of interest? What's their volume of activity related to a certain aspect of the business? So I know that's a bit of a roundabout answer, but there is no, there is no single answer to that question. But what I will tell you is we study golf participation uh, 
nationally every month, uh, where it used to be that we would do uh, national representative sample surveys, let's say to 30 or 40,000 households that we would do uh, split twice a year. Now we reach out to a few thousand national rep sample U.S. households every month. And that way, uh, the data is fresher in the respondent's mind. Uh, if we're only asking about something, did you play golf in the last 30 days? Was it the first time you played golf this year? Was it the first time you played golf ever? Uh, how many times did you play? Where did you play? It, it's much easier to remember the last 30 days than the last six months. Sure. So that's one answer relative to our consistent study of, of engagement and participation. Uh, but when it comes to information on travel, equipment, et cetera, in those cases, we might be using not a national rep sample. We might be using NGS proprietary panel of core golfers because those people represent those who play over 90% of the rounds in golf nationally and um, spend over 90% of the money. So it's that group when we're asking questions related to uh, their habits and trends that would impact golf companies in a big way, they're most interested in the roughly 12 million core golfers who do the 90% spend, 90% of rounds. And that's what our proprietary research panel represents, is that group of 12 million. And so there's certain research we'll do with our panel and there's certain national research we'll do with a national rep sample. I, I hope that helps. Yeah, sure. No, your answer kind of, you know, makes me think that the question I asked was probably too broad because you got to look at what you're actually talking about or like you're actually trying to find data for. So mm -hmm. that definitely helps. And that answers probably my question better than I asked it. So thank you for that. Come on, Al, get your act together here. <laughs> so let's, let's go into a couple of these numbers. And like you and I talked about before we started this conversation, want to kind of give a big picture look at what we're talking about here. So um, I'll start with the participation. Um, the headline of this participation surge that we're seeing uh, in the month of June. So in the last, 30 days, essentially, or, or a couple of months. Rounds are up 14%, and 7 to 8 million more rounds were played in June of 2020 as compared to June of 2019. Why do you think that is? What are, what are some of the biggest factors related to these bumps in participation? So, golf is one of so many choices of recreation that people have in general to choose from. And one of the things that has been so challenging, Al, to golf's growth is how many choices people have with their recreation time and with their discretionary income. Well, one of the things that's happened with COVID is those choices, that incredibly broad array of things that people can do with their free time which by the way, their amount of free time has really increased in general uh, to some degree because people are, are working from home. 
Unfortunately, there's a significant number of people who are out of work or underemployed. And what we're finding is those with the time, uh, there aren't as many choices as there were because of safety concerns, because of COVID concerns. So golf is so incredibly well positioned uh, and golf didn't have to uh, change the intrinsic nature of the game to accommodate and be safe for this environment. And what, what, I, what I love is that, you know, so many times where there's dynamics going on, uh, whether it's social, economic, or other dynamics, usually they negatively affect cough. So we have this, this wonderful situation where uh, COVID, while not being a wonderful situation, it has really highlighted golf's fantastic fit for safety, for social distancing, for unfortunately not touching. Uh, you know, hey, I'm a hugger. I like high fives. I like handshakes. I like to look people in the eye. Uh, but this is a different time. And hey, golf fits really well. And as a result of the situation, there are fewer choices of recreation and golf is open for business. And people have rediscovered the wonderfulness of golf and the outdoors, the outdoor uh, communing with nature, uh, the social aspects, even though you're social distancing and not doing some of the, the natural orthodoxies of the game, but golf is clearly benefiting from the fit of how the game is played with what today is all about. And People do have fewer choices, and that's been to our benefit. And people are rediscovering golf and all of the great things about it. And I think we will see a terrific residual effect of this rediscovery of golf's benefits. And I know I'm just yakking on here, but I do have something. I, I, I do think that people have gotten caught up so much uh, in the trappings of the game, okay? The fancy, you know, the, the equipment, the apparel, the private clubs, the, you know, the different things that people see that are a great part of the golf lifestyle. But this has brought the focus back to the game itself and how it's played and the intrinsic values of the game and what it's like to be on the course, even if you've got six clubs in your bag and you're just out there having fun, you're not competing, you're not grinding for a score, you're just enjoying the, the qualities uh, and the benefits of golf itself. And I just love that this, this, uh, this little boom, this COVID boom, uh, it, it, it is not focused. It, it, it takes the focus away from some of the trappings and it emphasizes the greatness of the game itself. Yeah, so sorry for those of you who, who kept hearing a phone in the background in the middle, middle of Greg's response, but um, as many who have, have followed or are fans of the game of golf have heard over the past four, five, six months, how great of a 
you know, relief and uh, how appropriate the sport of golf kind of fits into the guidelines of um, social distancing and maintaining health and safety outside. Just as, as Greg said, um, that in turn has, has shown in the data that, that more and more people are playing or, or starting to play for the first time. We lost, as could be expected, when there were a lot of course closures around like that April period. A lot of rounds were lost. Almost 20 million over year to year were lost. However, you're seeing that June increase where every state in the continental U.S. experiences an increase in rounds played. Um, and then I thought the, the interesting point at the bottom of this participation study is the jump in participation among juniors and like you said a lot of people out of work a lot of kids are out of school looking for something to do and something to play so it will be interesting to see as more new people are introduced to the game will they keep playing the game i think that's maybe something you guys are keeping an eye on i would think oh yeah of course of course we we are going to do do what needs to be done to quantify uh, some of the some of the lift that we're experiencing in a variety of participation segments, and in a really unusual twist, Al, where there's been so much discussion of uh, Top Golf and golf entertainment, off course golf participation, which we also measure. That because you know, they've been so popular and entertaining millions of customers, but they've, because of the nature of, of that sort of a sports bar-ish environment, where many of those establishments had to, had to close uh, because of COVID uh, temporarily, of course, it's created an opportunity for many of those people who experienced golf perhaps only through that environment who have said, hmm, all right, this is a different time. I can't go to Top Golf, but now that I've hit a real ball with a real club and I kind of like that, I, 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 I think I could uh, take a shot at trying this on a real golf course. That's another thing we'll be looking at is that effect. Cause we've been studying the, the interaction between golf entertainment and on-course play. By the way, we, we have a very definitive opinion that those, the forms of off-course participation, including top golf are a fantastic thing for on-course golf because anytime you can, have somebody hit a real ball with a real club who would not otherwise have done so, that's amazing. That's terrific. That's an on-ramp that every sport in the world uh, would give their left pinky toe, uh, if a sport had a pinky toe, uh, would give their left pinky toe to have such an on-ramp. So there's all different types of participation dynamics that we'll be looking at uh, because of this unique situation. But the fact that pe more people, junior or otherwise, are getting, have been getting on the golf course during COVID, many of those people are gonna be out on the course and say, oh, I kinda like this. 
I think I'm going to keep doing this. And it's the, it's that exposure that has the greatest value, the exposure of people who, who either haven't played in a while and are rediscovering it. And perhaps some people who never played, including juniors who are discovering the, 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 the great aspects of, of playing the game and who will stick with it. And I guess it remains to be seen um, over the next few months uh, should those participation numbers plateau, should they keep rising, we shall see. Correct. Uh, we'll talk, let's talk about uh, golf travel. Um, I thought it was very interesting, um, as can probably be expected as well. Less people are flying. And so kind of what we've seen on our end and from a marketing standpoint with, with some of our partners, uh, a lot of the advertisement placements have been focused on the drivable market. And it looks like the data is showing, or I mean, it, it is showing, it doesn't look that way, um, that three out of four people say they're willing to drive at least four hours um, for a golf getaway and still have planned to go on a golf trip this year. The remarkable number I thought was 31% said they were willing to drive more than eight hours to get to a golf destination. Uh, which seems like a lot of driving, but I just thought thought that was interesting. What what are you what are you guys seeing in terms of this change in travel intent and how that's looked over the last six months? Well, I th- I think that uh, look the core golfers Al are are adventurous. They like to go they, during all times. They like to go places. They like to experience different golf courses. They like road trips. You know, since I first started playing golf, you know, maybe when I was 16 years old, Al, Lynx Magazine has always done a fantastic job of feeding my appetite for places I wanted to go. The photography and the edit and, you know, hey, this is is a, a shameless plug for you. Okay, it's just that, you know, Lynx Lynx is significantly responsible for my love of golf course architecture and wanting to go see golf holes and courses that I've seen in the pages of Lynx magazine and and obviously now online. So I'm not so different. Well, I'm pretty different, but I'm not so different from uh, all of the golfers who love playing different courses who are willing to, to get in a car uh, where they might not be willing to get on a plane right now for safety reasons, but they'd be excited to do a road trip knowing what's at the end of the rainbow, my friend. And, and look, golf is open. When golf is open, golfers will travel uh, in, in however they feel they, they are best suited to, to get there and go have those experiences. Yeah, I think people are just, and maybe even it's just being stir crazy and, like you said, not wanting to hop on a flight, but they're saying, you know what, like, screw it. I got to get out of here. I'm going to do so in a way that I'm comfortable with and find that pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, like you're talking about. In terms of golf course status, at the lowest of the low in course closures, where were we 
and and where are we now in terms of like percentages? Do you well, I, I know when we first started measuring, uh, it was it, it was just about forty eight percent of golf courses in America were open uh, at the beginning of the pandemic, where every business essentially that every recreational business and other types of businesses were were uh, really looking out for the safety of their employees, looking out for the safety of the public, looking out for the safety of their customers. Most people, uh, many people that we spoke with when we did that initial uh, survey of golf courses in America that resulted in saying that roughly 50% are still open, a lot of people were surprised that 50% were open when so many businesses were closed. And we, we tried to educate folks that there's such a huge percent of golf courses in the United States that are not in cities. And so while a lot of people, you know, they only think about it in terms of what they see in front of them or what they see in the major cities, but there's a lot of golf courses that are, we're, we're in places that were not hit particularly hard by COVID. So those, those golf course businesses stayed open and that's pretty broad around the country. That's why you had, you know, 48% that were open. But today, I mean, it's, it's, you know, 98% or higher. Golf, golf is open for business. It's just open uh, with particular safety measures in place. And we think that most golf course owners and operators are, are being very responsible uh, relative to how they're operating and creating uh, an environment where people can be safe. The reports here are extremely valuable in terms of wanting to be informed about what's actually going on. Um, do you anticipate, are you going to continue producing such reports on a, a monthly basis moving forward or how does that look? We, we will continue to study and examine the effects of COVID on golf, as long as COVID remains, continues to have a significant influence on society, a significant influence on on recreation. I think the NGF prides itself on adapting to do what the industry needs at whatever point in time we're operating in. So over 84 years of being in business, we've, we've had to make a lot of uh, tax, uh, you know, a lot of different uh, movements of the ship to help people with what they need. Now, we're, we're, we're all hopeful that COVID uh, ceases to be the primary news story, the primary uh, influencer of our game. Uh, except for the fact that we're benefiting from it. So, you know, that, that in itself, we're not, uh, we'd like to continue to benefit from it, but it's in everybody's best interest for COVID to not be the dominant story. In, and in that case, Al, we, we learned a lot from reporting. We have continued, and we have learned a lot and we'll continue to learn from the faster more dynamic reporting that we're doing. 
And what you, what you and other people in the industry can expect is that even after COVID is not the lead story, that we are going to be publishing uh, more information on a more, uh, on a faster basis, on a more timely basis uh, to keep the industry informed about whatever it is that's affecting, affecting it. In that respect, we're, we're delighted to have gone through uh, the process of figuring out how best to inform the industry about COVID's effects because it, it has mobilized our research team in ways that maybe uh, we hadn't done before. And, and the industry has responded with such positive feedback, Al, to what we've been reporting. And, and thank you for you know, uh, shining, shining a light on it. It really means a lot to us. But all we care about is that the industry is healthy, that the businesses that operate within it get the best information that we can provide to help them do better. And so that, that's, that, that's what will direct you know, our future work. So in summary, despite what you've heard from maybe other sources, the golf industry is doing quite well. And uh, we, we like to see that and we hope that continues. Greg, thank you for your insights and information um, and sharing this time with us. We really appreciate it. Thank you for that shameless plug you, you threw at us earlier as well. Um, before I let you go, thinking back to, you know, wanting to go and travel, maybe fly a very long distance to get somewhere. What golf course or destination do you personally look forward to checking out next? So like many people I know who are golf course lunatics, like uh, links readers and users, I had, I had plans to go a few places this summer that would require airfare, uh, air travel, uh, and Sand Hills in Nebraska, uh, the Crenshaw Core design was on my list of places I was dying to go uh, this summer. And that, that, that's, uh, that's way up there. Uh, Fisher's Island. Uh, which is a New York, pro- you know, McDonald architecture, uh, New York property that's off the co- coast of Connecticut. Uh, that's a place I'm dying to visit as well. Uh, so those two were at the top of my top of my list of places that I was going to try and uh, hit this year. Well, here's to hoping you get there. A shameless plug from my end: we actually had a really nice feature on Sand Hills in our most recent issue, our summer issue which you can access online. Go to and what's the, what's the web address for them to find that, Al? You can go to linksmagazine.com and search <laughs> Sandhills and, and you'll find it's one of our modern classics. But yeah, it looks, looks like an incredible place. Uh, you'll have to let me know if you do, in fact, get to go there. Uh, well, one way or another, got to get there. Cool. All right, thanks again for the time, Greg. Uh, look forward to catching up with you again soon uh, and all the best to you, sir. My pleasure, Al. Uh, thanks to you and everybody at Links for what you do. And I uh, appreciate you having me on. Nice talking with you. Absolutely. Thanks. <laughs>